Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you, as we always do, to join us here this morning, and we trust that you are here with us. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts, your thoughts. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2010, the magician's pen and teller did something very controversial. At first, it seemed completely normal, a staple, in fact, of the magical tradition, the cup and ball trick. You know the one, there are three cups turned upside down, and the magician moves a ball between the cups in a way that the audience can't understand. It's, well, it's magic. But then, this particular trick, Penn and Teller weren't done, what they did next broke the very first rule of magic, that a magician never tells you how he does his trick. What Penn and Teller did was they swapped out the red plastic cups they were using for the trick and used clear plastic cups instead and then explained to the audience every step of the trick they were doing as they did it. But then something really magical happened. The trick wasn't ruined. And that's the fear of every magician, right? If the audience sees the way a trick is done, it will cease to seem magical and therefore cease to amaze. But incredibly, Penn and Teller's trick, and you can look it up on YouTube, is all the more amazing when you watch them do it and explain it every step. It's more magical than magic. And that's what I'm going to attempt to do for you here this morning, something more magical than magic. I'm going to do something, in fact, that I've never really done before. It's something that if I were teaching a preaching class, I would tell my students not to do. But I'm doing it in the hope that it will make the overall effect better. You see, normally, I stand here at this lectern with one goal, to preach the gospel, to announce God's saving grace in Christ for sinners. I'm not interested, at least not here, in talking about the gospel. I'm interested in proclaiming the gospel to you full stop. I hope that's a distinction that makes sense to you. It's the difference between telling you what happened and telling you what to do with that information. But today's reading, this parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25 and a couple of really good conversations that I've had recently have convinced me that I should give this a try. So here's what I'm going to do, just to sort of lay it out for you. First, I'm going to talk about the gospel, about how and why the gospel works. In other words, I'm going to break the first rule of preaching. I'm going to do this with clear plastic cups. I'm going to talk about why we preachers do what we do in the way we do it and why we're counting on it to work on you. I'm going to show you how the sausage gets made. And then 
I'll proclaim the gospel to you. I'll feed you the sausage. My hope is that like Penn and Teller's rule-breaking ball and cup trick, the final product will be all the sweeter. So, here we go. Matthew 25. Jesus tells this incredibly bracing parable. And much like last week's parable of the talents, it's really hard to read this one and not wince. In the same way that last week, many of you probably listened to that story and had the thought, am I the servant who buried his talent in the hole? Many of you probably heard Jesus' story this week about feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, caring for the sick, and visiting the prisoner and thought, oh my gosh, would Jesus say that I've done those things? Would he say that I've done them enough? And now my hope that those of you who have been here for any length of time at all will be sitting in your pew thinking to yourself, I know exactly what he's going to say. That this passage is designed to bring me up short, to make me realize just how short of the mark I'm falling, how infrequently I do these things with a pure heart. It's the law, the rules, the standard that's designed to force me to my knees and make me call out for a savior. And then he's going to say that he has good news, that a Savior has come, that Jesus lived the righteous life I never could, and then by his death and resurrection has given that righteousness to me. And yes, you're exactly right. That's the gospel, and that is what I'm going to say to you. But today, I'm going to say something else first. Like I said, I've had a couple of really good conversations lately that have all started basically like this. Yes, I understand that Jesus has given me his righteousness and that I'm saved by grace. But shouldn't I still try to do good things? Don't I have to respond? These are good questions, and though what I said at the beginning is quite true, ordinarily I wouldn't answer that question in a sermon, because to me, a sermon is just about proclaiming the gospel, full stop. Today, I'm going to try, and I'm going to do it by talking for a moment about how the gospel works, which will then lead into why all a sermon does is preach the gospel. Then we'll get to the actual preaching part. And I promise this will all happen within a reasonable amount of time. But this parable, if anything at all is clear in the reading of this parable of Jesus, it's that we should all feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, care for the sick, and visit the prisoner. I mean, look at the consequences. The people who don't do these things will According to verse 46, quote, go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous, the ones who do do them, into eternal life. And here we have the great rub of the Christian life. How do sinful people, in other words, basically self-interested people like you and me, how do sinners... Become people who do these things. 
Become people who feed the hungry, who give drink to the thirsty, who welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, care for the sick, and visit the prisoners. How do we get sinners to do these things? And as a preacher, this question takes on a little bit of a sharper point. What can I say to you that will help you become that kind of person? The traditional way, perhaps the most obvious strategy, is for me to simply encourage you to be people who do these things. Do more. Try harder. Be better. I can do this using fear of consequences, that eternal punishment that Jesus talks about, or by using the promise of reward, reminding you that these good things are good things that God will repay with eternal life. Perhaps, though, since I know that as Christians, you know that your eternal life is already secure in Christ, I could just encourage you to do these things simply to please God and serve your neighbor. But again, there's a catch. There's that pesky sin problem. How do we get sinners like you and me, to do these things. The philosopher Blaise Pascal likened asking a sinner to do good things to asking a man with two broken legs to run a marathon. Uh, Fitzsimmons Allison, the former Episcopal Bishop of South Carolina, put it this way, and I'm quoting directly here from a story he told, a Quote, a sergeant told a grim joke to his trainees during the Second World War, which shows the real flaw in this understanding of Christianity. A man stopped on a dirt road to help get another man's car out of the ditch. The latter was beginning to harness two small furry kittens to the bumper of his huge car when he was asked, Mr., You aren't going to try to get those kittens to pull that car out of the ditch, are you? His reply was, why not? I've got a whip. Stay with me. We want the man to run the marathon. We want the car out of the ditch. In the same way that we want Christians and all people to feed the hungry. Give drink to the thirsty, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, care for the sick, and visit the prisoner. The problem with encouragement and exhortation, with the whip, is in the capability of the one being encouraged or exhorted. We, you and I, are broken-legged people, small, furry kittens tied to the bumper of a huge car. In short, we're sinners, unable to do the good things we want to do. St. Paul describes the problem with encouragement and exhortation like this in Romans chapter 7. He says, if it had not been for the law, encouragement, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, he says, 
seizing an opportunity through the commandment, the encouragement and exhortation, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment, the very encouragement that promised life proved to be death to me. Did you hear it? When Paul was told, do not covet, all kinds of covetousness sprung up in him. The exhortation, the encouragement that he thought would spur him on to good works actually made things worse. He says, in fact, that it killed him. And by extension, we can imagine that he would say upon reading this parable of Jesus, when I was told to do all these things for my neighbor, all kinds of selfishness rose up in me. If the preacher says, love your neighbor in this way, all kinds of selfishness will rise up in the congregation. The operation is the same. We've still got to somehow overcome the sin problem and encouragement and exhortation. The whip don't seem to be the way to do it. In fact, the witness of Scripture and our experience in real life is that whips always make things worse. So what are we to do? We all agree we still want that car out of the ditch. I still want you to feed the hungry, to give drink to the thirsty, to welcome the stranger, and so on. We still want, as broken-legged people, to run the marathon. But how are we to accomplish it? Last week, in the rector's forum, J.D., and it pains me to flatter him like this, but he used a great illustration. He talked about the gospel as a heat laser aimed at our ice ball of a heart. Our icy hearts, even as Christians, are the equivalent of Pascal's broken legs. They're the equivalent of Fitz Allison's tiny kittens tied to a huge car. Our hearts, profoundly turned in upon themselves as they are, are the reason that exhortation and encouragement aren't enough. Our sinful, frozen hearts. It is only the gospel that can melt a frozen heart. What actually happens is that when you hear the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came to live, die, and be raised again for you outside anything that you have done, are doing, or will ever do, the ice ball in your heart melts. And the now boiling water starts flowing out of you in every direction. When you hear the good news that all the affirmation, all the value, all the identity, and all the love you could ever need has been given to you for free on account of Christ, you are free 
to stop seeking those things from other people. And guess what? You actually begin to serve them. The hungry get fed. The thirsty are given something to drink. The stranger is welcomed. The naked are clothed. The sick are cared for. The prisoners are visited. All this holiness comes as a direct result of hearing the gospel because it is the gospel that melts a frozen heart, turning that ice into a boiling river of love. Before you start worrying about that, know this. You're never aware of your own boiling river of love. But it doesn't matter because your neighbor is. You come back here week after week after week worried that your heart is frozen and the gospel melts it all over again. It's not dependent on you at all. This is God's good pleasure, his work in your life. And this is our great secret. It's not a secret because you're not allowed to know it. We want everyone to know it. It's a secret because it's the complete opposite of what you expect. You expect Penn and Teller explaining their trick to ruin it, but in fact it makes it better. Here's how our trick works. Holiness does not come by exhortation, but by grace. Holiness does not come by exhortation, but by grace. This is the key thing, and the reason that a sermon is just about proclaiming the gospel full stop. If holiness comes by grace, we spend all our time talking about grace to melt your frozen hearts all the more, to release even more boiling water of love into the world, to actually get you to become the kinds of people that God has called you to be. So let's talk about grace. And this is the second sermon, the real sermon, the sermon you'll hear week by week, day by day, hour by hour, because this sermon actually works. The Lord has promised us it would in Isaiah 55 when he said, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. He's promising us his word will succeed So, don't you have to do good things? Don't you have to respond? Well, the news is better than that. You will do good things. You will respond. And when you're worried about it, come back to us and we'll melt your heart again. On this trip of the Christian life, the Holy Spirit is our driver, 
We are in good hands. His word will accomplish the purposes for which he sent it. The Spirit will make sure those purposes are accomplished. And grace is the fuel that makes the car go. Therefore, we don't talk about what the trip will look like. We just keep pouring gas in the tank. This is how we encourage Christian growth. We preach the gospel again and again and again and again. So this is the word of the Lord. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. This passage is designed to bring you up short, to make you realize just how short of the mark you're falling, how infrequently you do these things with a pure heart. It's the law, the rules, the standard that's designed to force you to your knees and make you call out for a Savior. But I have good news. A Savior has come. Jesus Christ lived the righteous life that you never could and then by his death and resurrection has given his righteousness to you. It is finished. And now I'm excited to watch that boiling river of love flow. Amen.